Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, we're very uh, excited about um, the uh, evening tonight. I'm always excited when I hear about Los Angeles because this is um, my town. Um, the way the uh, evening will work is that Andrew Diener will go first and then Susan Phillips. Um, they'll read for about 15 or talk about 15, 20 minutes and then uh, we'll do a Q&A um, afterward. So, um, a little bit about Andrew Diener. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. See, got a little fan club. People screaming already. I just mentioned your name. Um, <laughs> um, something I know about Andrew is that his father is here because uh, he was the first one to show and says, can I buy two books? <laughs> okay, good dad, good dad. That's good dad. Um, Andrew Diener is, a, is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Connecticut. And this is uh, what, ha, what, my, what Mike Davis, author of City of Courts, Excavating the Future in Los Angeles, said. In this tour de force of dialectical observation. Dialectical observation. Andrew Diener explains how Venice Beach is both LA's democratic libido and the summation of its inequalities. I read, the, I read that sentence like 10 times. Okay, so, you know, and you can read it over and over again when you buy the book. So, but ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Andrew Diener. When a friend of mine saw that quote, he, he refuted it and said that he was the democratic libido of Los Angeles, so he wasn't so certain that the book was, that Venice Beach was. Um, I'm going to start by just reading a little bit from the introduction, just a couple of pages, and then I will kind of dissect some of those themes and talk a little bit more about how some of these things work in Venice and in Los Angeles more generally. Nestled between Santa Monica and Marina del Rey along the Los Angeles coast, Venice is a vibrant community where contrasts between cultures and classes are seemingly everywhere. Most think of it as a quirky beach town, an enclave for artists, beatniks, and hippies, and visitors from near and far come to its boardwalk, one of the most eclectic and iconoclastic public spaces in California. Yet Venice also has so many elements that make urban living attractive. Racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic diversity, artistic and architectural creativity, Interesting commercial amenities ranging from the boardwalk's raucous vending culture to the restaurants, coffee shops, and boutiques and other nearby commercial strips. 
and it has residents consumed by a spirited political dialogue about its future. Venice represents the dynamism and contradictions that diversity brings. It reveals the cultural richness and creative nuances that emerge when people seek out proximity to differences, but it also shows that even as individuals of different backgrounds idealize diversity as a concept, inequalities and conflict are a persistent thorn in the pursuit of a new age of neighborhood integration. Widely hailed as a Southern California bastion of liberal culture and politics, Venice is a community divided. I'm going to present a bit of a tour of Venice to get you situated in the scene itself. We begin our tour on the Venice Boardwalk, formerly known as Oceanfront Walk, where the Pacific Ocean is directly to the west and the Santa Monica Mountains are in our distant view to the north. The former site of lively beatnik cafes and kosher bakeries during the decades between 1950 and 1970, the boardwalk has become a world-renowned tourist destination with a unique commercial identity. On any given day, up to 200 people set up shop on the beach side of the boardwalk in a rent-free vending economy that they call the free speech zone. While most cloak their sales and performances with some element of free speech, incorporating some artistic, religious, or political emblem, they blur the boundaries between this presentation and economic ambitions. An African-American artist with chin-length dreadlocks who has been homeless on and off for four decades preaches about his display of shattered television screens painted over with the phrase, axis of evil. He sells color-copied prints of paintings of the boardwalk scenery. Curious about the peppery scent of burning sage, tourists listen to a tall and lanky black man with a silver beard peddle the herb tied in bundles, promising them that burning it like incense will ultimately rid their homes of demons. A middle-aged Asian artist strains to express his point to in English to a white teenage girl posing for her portrait with posters labeled Chinese paintings for sale stacked beside him. A Latina woman in her mid-twenties, originally from Mexico City, beads jewelry on hemp, adding a crucifix to each piece. A large crowd gathers around a Salvadoran man who walks shirtless and barefoot with a woman sitting on his shoulders over the crushed remains of hundreds of glass bottles, with each step leaving behind blood-stained footprints on the concrete. The crowd, enthralled by his performance, throws dollar bills into a straw hat. The mob packing into the boardwalk divides the informal economic attachments from the formal ones. Opposite the free speech zone are beach bungalows, weather-worn apartment buildings, shiny, multi-level loft and condominium developments, as well as rent-paying businesses where one can buy a $2 coffee or a $5 sandwich, get a tattoo, cheap sunglasses, or a touristy t-shirt. Some residents, store owners, and landlords complain to the police about competition over vending spaces and noise from amplified music coming from the free speech zone. Rent-paying business owners object to those on the rent-free side selling similar products as the ones that they carry in their stores. Police officers move up and down the boardwalk on foot by bicycle or in slowly maneuvering cars and SUVs through the masses, trying to mediate between these competing interests. We walk toward the northern end of the boardwalk and stop at the corner of Rose Avenue. In the mid-80s, a homeless tent city took over this section of the beach, leading to an intense conflict between residents and homeless activists. The tent city is long gone, but hidden behind a string of vendors are dozens of people sleeping on a grassy mound shaded by towering palm trees. If we return the next day, this group may have suddenly disappeared, the outcome of a homeless sweep. 
Awakened by LAPD officers at 5 o'clock a.m., many are hauled away to jail, only to return the following week to begin accumulating their modest possessions from scratch. If we continue up Rose Avenue, away from the boardwalk, homelessness is even more pronounced, differentiating this section as a separate neighborhood. Lining Rose and its intersecting streets are dozens of rundown RVs. Those who live in them are outside talking with friends, many who live directly on the streets without a vehicle, some smoking hand-rolled cigarettes, others smoking pot. Several homeless men and women stand on the corner, watching a parade of tourists park their cars and saunter toward the beach. A few in a far worse state of mind appear disconnected from their surroundings and hold elaborate conversations with themselves. They rummage through trash cans, picking apart styrofoam packages to look for intact leftovers. One woman with thinning disheveled hair wildly yells at a man walking by, showing off her missing teeth with each insult. A burly man with a dark brown beard, ragged trucker's, trucker's hat, and broken sunglasses held together by masking tape politely asks pedestrians for money. And others bury themselves under blankets on the sidewalks of less traffic streets perpendicular to Rose. Walking inland from the beach along Rose Avenue, a right turn on 7th Avenue takes us to another distinct neighborhood that locals call Oakwood. We pass by one of five historically black churches, the First Baptist Church, with roots dating back to the early 1900s when Venice was first developed and the earliest African Americans moved in. Across from the church is a park, the Oakwood Park, that operates as the neighborhood center, marked by a sign honoring a one-time influential African American activist, one of the many visible tributes to the black community in Oakwood. On the northern end of the park, retired African American men sit at picnic tables playing dominoes and reminiscing about the way things used to be. Younger black men in their 20s and 30s congregate by a fence near the picnic tables, listening to music played from cars parked in the street. One of the young men moves away from the group toward a slow-moving vehicle driven by a middle-aged white man and holds a small bag out in the open during daylight hours without even trying to disguise his action. After making an exchange, the car speeds off and he returns to his friends. Por formerly part of a massive operation on many street corners throughout Oakwood, the drug distribution ring has been steadily pushed by LAPD officers into the vicinity of the park, where surveillance cameras now monitor every move. Only a few of the young men actually engage in illicit activities, but the friendships between dealers and non-dealers have complicated histories, as many grew up together in Oakwood, and family members have known each other for decades. On the opposite end of the park, a different type of lawlessness takes place. Newer residents, white men and women in their 30s and 40s, let their dogs run off their leashes, disregarding a city ordinance that restricts this activity and runs at cross-purposes with the interests of older residents whose children and grandchildren use the park to play. With the exception of the park and its immediate surroundings, Oakwood streets are very quiet. Occasionally we pass individuals, couples and families walking on the sidewalks. African-American women, many of them seniors, sit outside small and simple but neatly organized homes in which multiple generations of family members have lived. Latina women wait with their children outside a grocery truck with fresh fruits and vegetables for sale, making friendly banter with the driver who only speaks Spanish. White women push vibrant colored designer baby strollers across the street without breaking stride in order to avoid an African-American homeless man stumbling toward them from a desolate alleyway. If we walk on 7th toward California, a right turn brings us to Abbott Kinney Boulevard, 
a diagonal retail artery that runs through the center of Venice and operates as a clear neighborhood boundary. A local coffee shop called Abbott's Habit is on the corner. Opened in the 80s, it is one of the quote-unquote old spots on the street where gray-haired hippies, sunglass-wearing hipsters, as well as up-and-coming professionals in the industry that is the entertainment business, all make use of this small social space, one of the few remaining integrative spots on the street. At one time, Abbott Kinney Boulevard was the site of African-American community organizations, left-wing political groups, artist studios, thrift stores, abandoned lots, and graffiti-covered buildings. In recent years, it has become filled with high-end shops and eateries. Successful artists who live in Venice and have lived there for decades meet in the evenings at Hal's Bar and Grill, a longtime local favorite. Closer to Main Street, people from all over Los Angeles flock to a strip of expensive restaurants giving rise to the label Restaurant Row. Strolling along, we witness people parking hybrid cars, getting ready to shop at trendy boutiques and antique furniture stores. Some are donning the latest designer fashions. $200 skinny jeans, $350 oversized sunglasses, and one woman drapes a $3,000 bag over her forearm, large enough to fit her toy dog. <laughs> Others purposely present themselves as beach bums and bohemians wearing ripped jeans, flannel shirts, flip-flops, and fedoras. Regardless of how they stage themselves, they walk in and out of upscale stores. Yeah, use that. <laughs> Sometimes spending much more money on lavish items than it seems they can afford from the way they dress. I'm going to stop the tour there. There are other sections that I can get to, the canals return back to the boardwalk, but I just want to talk a little bit about what some of these themes reflect in a larger picture of what Venice is and how it's related to the city of Los Angeles. Um, since the 1970s, I don't, I don't think it's really a secret that Venice has been undergoing gentrification. It's the term that everybody throws around. But what do we need, mean by that term, and how does it work in, relation to a in relationship to a place that has such a dramatic sense of diversity um, across race, ethnicity, and class. The basic definition is the influx of wealthier people into a neighborhood th that they wouldn't have lived in previously, often leading to the displacement of older residents. Certainly, that happens in Venice to some degree, and it has for about 40 years. But it doesn't tell us very much about how gentrification might work or what it means to the people who live in those neighborhoods and um, have been forced out. Gentrification is basically, I argue, many different things at the same time, and it changes the way a place looks and feels. The reason I wanted to start the, the book with a tour was to give you a sense of what things look like and what they feel. I call this the neighborhood public culture. There's something public about culture, about the visibility of it, about what you can see that gives you a sense of whether you belong or whether you don't. Um, with gentrification, we see the influx, some uh, visible elements are the influx of new residents who offer d different daily routines or find value in different things. For example, housing aesthetics. They build houses that look different than the previous residents. They pay more attention to certain brands or styles. Um, they have different interpretations of the meaning of community, and they engage in political action in very 
different way. It's subtle, but different. Old time residents would engage politics by going directly to the source. Um, in, the, in the 1990s, in the Oakwood section, historically a segregated African-American neighborhood, um, Latinos started to move in. And over time, there were some confrontations between the different ethnic groups, um, leading to some major violence, gang violence, in the 90s. The way of dealing with that gang violence was to intervene directly, go directly to the source, talk to people who were selling drugs on the streets, talk to people who were committing violence. Many of the residents who had been there for decades knew the people committing crimes. So they went right there to those people and said, you know, we don't want you doing this here. Don't do it in front of my house. Move another block or stop it altogether. And don't bring in young people into this. There was a direct intervention. And that was historically how it was done. And the reason it was done that way is because the police wouldn't come to the neighborhood. If, if there was a serious problem over decades, African Americans lived in Oakwood since the early 1900s, and they called the police, the police didn't show up. So the solutions were often group-based. Let's see if we can get it done. When new groups moved in, there were new forms of intervention. People started to call the police more. People um, called, called their politicians, their city councilmen more. They called city attorneys more. They helped to orchestrate and implement a gang injunction in the Venice area against the three gangs that were active there. In addition to this, right, de developers have become more active, implementing a whole new visible symbolic code, condominium conversions, much larger houses over time. Also, new retail and restaurants. Abbott Kinney Boulevard used to be called West Washington Boulevard. It was a place of cross-cultural contact. Um, it had thrift stores, rundown buildings, um, bohemian groups settled there and organized. The, the, the left-wing political rag, the Free Venice Beachhead, was started and organized on Abbott Kinney Boulevard. Then it was West Washington Boulevard. Um, the Free... Uh, the, the, um, the Peace and Freedom Party started on West Washington Boulevard as well. There were teen centers for African-American youth. There were all sorts of mixing that was going on on the street. Over time, it became much trendier. Um, recently, GQ magazine labeled Abbott Kinney Boulevard as the trendiest block in the United States. <laughs> Just to give you a sense, right? But th this doesn't exist in a bubble, right? Gentrification doesn't exist in a bubble. We tend to think, well, something new is happening and all these new people are moving into a neighborhood, well, it's completely changing the fabric of the community and changing the look and feel, but it's more complicated than that. History is very odd that way, actually. Um, all different things happen at different periods and continue to impact the current situation. Right? They, they have these kind of paths that they take. Right? For example, African-American segregation. If you were to look at the history of black segregation in Los Angeles, places like Watts, Pacoima, San Pedro, and Venice's Oakwood. These are historically the only places that African-Americans were allowed to settle. So when you, have, when you have newcomers moving into a historically segregated neighborhood, the meaning of gentrification and the impact of race relations on that kind of situation is quite different than in another case. Since the 1970s, Latino and Asian immigration transformed LA into one of the most ethnically diverse cities in the United States. And you're seeing this everywhere. I mean, you can't go to a neighborhood in LA where you don't see the impact of immigration, whether it's in the entrepreneurial spirit or the, the workforce of LA or just everyday life walking around the streets. 
Venice is a place where you can see this. You can see it in Oakwood. Venice, Oakwood went from being a majority African-American neighborhood to becoming a majority Latino neighborhood. So you, now you had this black Latino mix, and then increasingly, it became even uh, it became a not majority but largest population white neighborhood. So now you have whites, Latinos, and African Americans living in the Oakwood section. Bohemianism is another one. No place in LA is more famous for countercultural movements than Venice. Um, arts and countercultural politics have influenced the identity of the place since the 1950s. The Beat Movement which emerged in North Beach in San Francisco, Greenwich Village in New York, and Venice in Los Angeles, mostly in the canal section along the boardwalk. You had people who were engaged in both the arts and a kind of celebration of poverty for its own sake. Right? And then increasingly, you had this countercultural politics that emerged that influenced the kind of slow growth movement across the coast. And then homelessness. LA has the dubious distinction as the homeless capital of Los Angeles. Downtown LA, Hollywood, Santa Monica, Venice, places with many different social services, a place where you can see poverty on the streets every day, everywhere you look. Um, so how all of these different pieces come together and mix is central, I argue, to neighborhood culture and our notions of who belongs in a place. If a place doesn't look and feel welcoming, we call it exclusive, right? I mean, if you were to drive up to Bel Air, it's, very, it's a very small number of people that can go into Bel Air and say, oh yeah, this is me. This is where I, this is where I, this is where I fit in, right? This is, right? I mean, you walk in, it has this daunting gate. The houses are huge, even behind additional walls. There's, secure, there's security uh, cameras everywhere. You know, you can hardly see the houses. The ones you can see, there's huge dips below that just like, you know, it's something out of a movie for most of us, right? But, but some places have been more welcoming to groups that are labeled as outsiders, when you whether call them countercultural groups, whether you want to call it historically uh, uh, minority groups who weren't allowed to live in a lot of other areas. So, and then if you were to look across Los Angeles, you have these exclusive territories like Bel Air, but you also have these places where diversity exists where you have all of these different processes that I just talked about. African-American segregation, Latino and Asian immigration, uh, bohemianism, and homelessness, and now gentrification converging right in close proximity. In, in uh, the early 1920s, Harvey Zorba wrote a book about Chicago that he called The Gold Coast and the Slum. It was about the near north side of Chicago. And it was about how these different groups but all the, just different every, people of all different types of lifestyles and ways of life settled in the same place. Well, Venice, in a sense, is a kind of 20th century, 21st century now, um, place that matches this kind of um, proximity of diversity. And I argue that the best way to see how a city works and to see all the different forces together and to see the neighborhoods, Los Angeles is very much a city of neighborhoods, right? I mean, the sprawling, you look on a map, and you see the sprawling geography, and people think, well, the, there's no such thing as the local in Los Angeles, right? It's the, it's the opposite, right? There, there's so much sprawl and so much expansive geography that local matters even more. People become even more attached to their local spaces. When I was living in Venice, people used to wear these t-shirts that said AWOL across the top of the shirt. And then underneath, it was A-W-O-L. Underneath it said, always west of Lincoln meaning Lincoln Boulevard, and it's true, right, in some sense, right? People tend to spend most of their times in the neighborhoods that they live in LA because the traffic is 
unbearable. And, and the geography is, is too distant, and people don't want to travel, right? So for the most part, I will say, anyway. So what happens in these conditions is the paradox of diversity. Right? The assumption is that the proximity of diversity leads to neighborhood integration. Well, the truth is that people with different histories, different understandings and experiences in the neighborhood, and different ideas about what a neighborhood should be don't always mix. They might be living right next to each other, but they don't necessarily mix. In Oakwood, you have a, a, a sort of southern culture that emerged when African Americans moved from the south up to California to work building the, the canals and the pier in Venice. Um, having a kind of front porch culture that was typical of the South that has kind of lasted to this day. People are outside. It's part of the culture. Well, realistically, white, middle, upper middle, and upper class people coming from the suburbs tend to have a more private lifestyle. They move into those neighborhoods and the, the vision of people outside is very, um, in a sense, shocking to them and they don't exactly know what to do. They build big high fences around their properties. Some people will build seven foot fences around their properties. I mean, literally seven foot fences around their property. Um, people will call the police for any ac activity. Um, I, I went to a funeral in Oakwood um, that was to celebrate the life of an older resident in the neighborhood, he lived to well into his 80s. I think he died, he was 88. I mean, he had a nice long life and there was a very big celebration. People came from all over LA that used to live in Oakwood. And before long, you had literally hundreds of African-American people in the streets of Venice. Well, most people sitting here in their heads would say, well, that's okay. They're celebrating the life of, of a resident. All of a sudden, police started circling. And you had dozens of police cars circling, police getting out of their cars, inquiring, what's going on in this situation? A few months later, um, there was a spot in the Oakwood Park where African-American seniors would play dominoes and had forever. One day they went out to play dominoes and the picnic tables where they had been playing for decades were gone, disappeared, removed from the park because people complained they didn't want people out in the park. It was a park. Right, that was the argument. So you had these competing visions, these competing cultures. What makes a, a community meaningful for people, right? And, and so the book, in a sense, tries to dissect the contestations around community and community experiences. And you can see it in all sorts of different, different uh, uh, population groups. So you know, I have a chapter on the Oakwood section, but also a chapter on homelessness, a chapter on the boardwalk. Um, and a chapter on the canals to give you a sense of how all of these different groups have navigated these processes. The book is basically about the dilemma of diversity and the difficulty of seeing the world from many different perspectives. To, and my sense is that to have empathy and understanding of where people are coming from and to not group people together so easily is the challenge, right? To not look at people and say that all people of the same group, whether they're, whether they're homeless, or whether they're gentrifiers, or whether they're African Americans, or whatever group that they're identified with visibly, right? Because we're talking about this notion of what's visible in culture. To not categorize them as uniform, as a uniform group. So um, I just want to end on that and, and just say uh, thank you to Skylight Books for organizing and thank you all for coming too.
Thank you, Andrew. Our next reader is uh, Susan A. Phillips. She's an assistant professor of environmental analysis at Pitzer College. She is the author of Wall Bangin', Graffiti and Gangs in LA, also published by the University of Chicago Press. Uh, this is what Tom Hayden had to say about her book. Susan A. Phillips' book should be required reading for every pro proponent of the wars on drugs and gangs who may be entertaining second thoughts of what they have wrought. She illuminates evidence that the wars may be self-justifying and self-perpetuating. The blunt questions are whether turning undervalued human beings into high-value targets for police and prosecutors only creates a vacuum to be filled by vengeance, and whether demonizing only assures the further rise of demons. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Susan A. Phillips. Thank you very much. Um, what I wanted to do today is exactly the opposite of what Andrew did. And that was great. And actually, I'm really excited that there are a lot of um, intersections between his work and mine in terms of issues of uh, demographic change and also dealing with the issue of drugs um, and gangs in communities, um, which is essentially the main, some of the main themes of my book. Um, so thank you all so much for being here into Skylight. I wanted to say that yes, um, so some of you already knew even before Noelle said it that I had written this previous book about gang graffiti. Um, and like any good project, this one kind of spun out of that one. And um, I, I made a very good friend um, during the course of that writing that um, then kind of became an anchor for me in the neighborhoods where I was working. And I worked, um, I started working in 1995 in the Pueblo del Rio neighborhood um, and in the, the historic part of, of what we used to call South Central LA. And now there's all kinds of different names for it, South LA and um, historic South Central. Um, but this is basically the 50s blocks between Central Avenue and Alameda. And so, um, you know, being a white girl and, and being in what were then very already mixed um, African-American Latino neighborhoods, it was nice for me to have someone who accepted me into his family um, and into his life and who created the possibility for me to do this work and um, he was in prison most of the time that I knew him and eventually was released and then in, died in 2008 in a um, in a gang related killing he was he was killed um, but I wanted to mention him here because what happened in that instance is that I published this book in 99 and then I was doing all this work and I was feeling like I was an anthropologist ethnographer and I kind of wanted to write this book about the neighborhood and I just could never really figure out what to do with it you know I had a bunch of stories I knew a bunch of people I was like maybe write about these people's lives you know and and just talk about the neighborhood and its history and all the people that have died and sort of death and mourning issues were really key at the time um, and it was pretty vague, honestly, and I just was sort of aimlessly not, I mean, you're never aimless if you have a real connection to people. And I felt that real connection. Um, but in terms of focusing it into a book, I honestly didn't know what to do about it until um, nine years ago yesterday when he got caught 
up in this um, sweep and was arrested along with um, 28 other people um, on June 26, 2003 um, in this task force called Operation Flytrap. And so when that happened, um, basically I watched his family just crumble, like his family just shatter. Um, his mother um, was um, facing eviction proceedings from public housing because of it. Um, his little brother started flipping off um, cops every time he saw them in the neighborhood. He had been taken out at gunpoint in his underwear. He was 12, um, mistaken for a suspect. Um, the, his wife was arrested and lost her job. She was without income for eight months. She, the, she was arrested and, and wasn't ever um, held. Um, she, um, th there was child social services involved. So there was a lot of anxiety on the part of the family. And here my friend Ben was peripheral to this case. He was a state target. He wasn't even in the federal conspiracies. And there were all these people at the center of the case. There were 28 other people. And I thought, my God, if this is happening to his family, you know, what is happening to the other 28 families? You know, like, so that's what started the project for me was this idea of family dissolution. And I started writing to the, um, the people who had been detained in the case and sort of asking them, like, what happened to you? What happened to your family um, after, after the these arrests. And what happened was a couple people responded. Um, they self-selected. A lot of people were very suspicious. If you can imagine in the wake of an FBI-led sting sweep operation, you know, the anthropologist is not like the first person you want to turn to with major <laughs> trust. So I was lucky though in that the people who did respond to me were the people at the center of the case. So the most important people in the case happened to be the ones to return my letters that I wrote to them in prison. And it helped me that I knew people that they knew. Like I had experience in the neighborhoods. I knew people that they used to get high with. I knew people that they used to be prostitutes with or sell drugs with. Like I knew the neighborhoods and I knew the landscape and I knew my friend Ben. Um, so that's how the whole thing got started and it began to sort of um, really be shaped by more, I realized that the story of family dissolution was just one part, one part of the story. And what came out of it in the end was my desire to change the way we talk about crime and change the way that we talk about criminal justice and to kind of change the rhythm of what that conversation looks like because all you guys ever hear about are these moments of apprehension, 28 people arrested in an early morning raid, that story. And then you might hear this, the story about people being sentenced to 27 years, 25 years, 22 years. You may hear that story a couple years later. So those are the two places where publicity sets our gaze, and I really wanted to shift that and set our gaze somewhere else. And I wanted to write the story of this case from sort of surveillance to sentencing and talk about the contexts that give rise to crime, including things that stretch far beyond the control of any neighborhood residents, like changes in the political economy, changes in our educational system, like really broad things, including demographic shifts. And then I also wanted to write about 
the consequences of the suppression of crime, which is also something that the public never hears about. So my interest it was in shifting um, into a different rhythm and using people's stories and the people at the center of this case, their stories, their life stories, their life histories, and their ongoing struggles to kind of frame and reframe the concept of criminal justice into a conversation that also included elements of social justice. And so that's really the goal of the work. Um, and I wanted to read to you the first four or so pages. Um, and, and then I'll give you a brief kind of, um, you know, just snapshot of, of what the book is about, like what it is that we talk about in here in my chapters. Um, and, then, um, and then open up for questions for Andrew and me. Um, and I wanted to start with the very beginning introduction of the book which um, starts with a woman who is at the center of the case, um, Tina Fly, and um, beginning with her list of aliases that is in one of the federal um, the, in one of the federal um, uh, police um, and law enforcement documents. Um, okay, Charlotte Venia Jackson, A.K.A. Charlotte Renee Jackson, Charlotte Tina Jackson, Charlotte Venda Jackson, Tina Jackson, Nick Janae Hones, Charlotte Ventra Jackson, Renata Johnson, Charlotte Vina Jackson, Ricky, Rick, and this is the grandchild. It's okay. This is the grandchild here of Charlotte, uh, of Rick Nihones, Nikki Jones, Renata Carlette Johnson, Renata C. Jackson, Renata Carlotte Johnson, Renata Charlotte Johnson, Charlotte Venia Jackson, Nig Janae Hones, and Tina Fly. Um, and this is Tina Fly's um, grandbaby, Denim. Okay. When Tina Fly was eight years old, she put a firecracker in a classmate's ear. Tina was a nearly illiterate child. The incessant teasing by other students compounded her behavioral problems, like the firecracker incident, and eventually she was put in special classes. Her mother, Jenny Jackson, remembers a doctor prescribing Ritalin for Tina when she was nine, which was the beginning of trips to the psychologist and physician. Tina attempted suicide at 14. She afterwards cycled through mental hospitals and treatment centers throughout South Los Angeles and Watts. She was diagnosed alternately with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, depression, and much later, borderline mental retardation. She claimed she sometimes heard the voice of her father telling her to kill herself, or contrarily, to be strong. She was a lesbian lover of Linda Bear, a flytrap target dubbed Black, and Crystal, a half-black, half-Mexican crack addict who eventually became Confidential Source 1. Tina met John Edwards, or Junior, at 16, and shortly thereafter became pregnant with Tawana, the eldest of her two daughters. Junior was her first real romance and remains the man she describes as the love of her life. In adulthood, they became crimies, partners in crime, but as teens, they were embroiled in attraction and dependence. Before Flytrap, Junior's only violent criminal charge was related to domestic violence against Tina. When he found out that Tina had lied by telling him he was the father of her next child, Joanna, he didn't care. He continued to provide help for the girl, another challenged child, who with her grandmother's aid eventually graduated from high school. 
Every time Tina was incarcerated, authorities medicated her. At 20, she, became the she began the crack abuse that would last for the next two decades. No trauma or life-changing event drove her to her addiction. When a friend gave her the first hit, she wanted more. In the mid-1990s, Tina became a prostitute to support her habit. She did demoralizing things on crack, she says, that she never would have done otherwise. She left her kids with her mother and ran wild on Central Avenue. When the FBI arrested and charged Tina in 2003, she had no technical grounds on which to base an insanity plea, but the court psychologist suggested that the judge take her poor impulse control and susceptibility to manipulation into account during sentencing. She had, however, also been caught on wiretap, planning to exploit her mental health history by acting unstable. She boasted of paying a mental health worker to testify for her. In court, she argued that she had worked for Junior in fear and that Kevin Allen, or K-Rock, was her pimp and that she had been dealing drugs to support her habit. But the wiretap showed that despite her disabilities, Tina Fly ran things and ran people, so much so that the FBI had named the entire task force after her, Operation Flytrap. Operation Flytrap began in 2001 at a picnic table behind LAPD's Newton Division Station on Central Avenue during a conversation between Officer Mark Brooks of the LAPD and Special Agent Robert King. And I'll just interrupt myself to say that one of the things that I came to the conclusion about during the course of the research was how important it was to tell the different sides of this tale from the multiple perspectives of the players. So that to, it turns out that what is interesting about my book is not that it's about gangs or drugs or the drug trade, but that it's about cops too. Um, that, that those voices were actually much more challenging for me to get um, that, and for me to gain even permission to speak to law enforcement was incredibly difficult and it was much more challenging than speaking to gang members or drug dealers. Um, so I'm actually very lucky that I got to do that. Um, for a time, it didn't look like it was going to be a possibility. So I'm, I'm pretty grateful to actually, especially the two law enforcement people at the center of this case. Um, yeah, and, and then the other thing that's fun is, you know, in my cell phone, I have to mark that as, I have the, the FBI guy, the LAPD guy, I've got, you know, I've, I've got all the targets, you know, I'm emailing with people. It's, it's like you, you develop a new community that's really holistic in some sense, and I think that's actually the sign, like if our society could do that, I mean, it's more like Venice, like my, my cell phone is like Venice, I feel like. Um, okay. Um, special, so continuing right along, um, Special Agent King was in LA on another case, and the two had previously met during the takedown of 38th Street, the historic Latino gang neighborhood of Sleepy Lagoon fame. Brooks proposed that he and King work together against gangs in two nearby Bloods neighborhoods, the Pueblo Bishops and the Bloodstone Villains. Gunfire intended for a gang member had recently killed an innocent woman on her porch. Brooks's lieutenant was pressuring area officers for results. Brooks had been around a long time and knew everyone in the neighborhoods he patrolled. He had watched the kids grow into gang members of the most lethal kind, violent and on drugs, uneducated and lacking in empathy. He had started his own childhood in a similar neighborhood, but his mother had moved from Watts and Compton to Texas. There he had chosen a different path and made it.
something he liked to remind the young G's of when he encountered them on the street. He knew, he said, that the neighborhood was full of good people, but it was his job to get the others, like these gang members, who spread poison in the community. Brooks and King began to lay the groundwork for a new task force to draw out that poison permanently, if possible. The Pueblo bishops and Bloodstone villains two adjacent African-American Bloods neighborhoods hold down the 50s blocks between Central Avenue and Alameda Street in Los Angeles. The relationship between the Pueblos and villains is often contentious, but historically they had been close allies who'd never engaged in a full-scale gang war. Rumors abounded that members of the other gang had AIDS. There were squabbles over all kinds of neighborhood issues. 30 years of love, friendship, partying, and rivalry came out in all kinds of crazy ways that didn't necessarily lead to lethal violence. The two allied gangs used to write their names together, PBSV for Pueblo Bishops, Bloodstone Villains. By 2000, however, tensions between the two neighborhoods had increased. Pressure from nearby Crip gangs had, had kept the two Bloods neighborhoods united, but the gradual dissolution of the Blood-Crip ideological rivalry beginning in, in 1992 and the demographic shift in the area from Black to Latino sparked chronic fighting within the two gangs, as well as with 38th Street, the Latino gang just to the north of them. The Operation Flytrap Task Force intended to stop this warfare by targeting the area's lucrative underground drug economy and its key players. Jenny Jackson watched it all happen from a distance. That ride, she said later. I'll never forget that ride. From the morning officers had burst into her house to the day in court where she heard the wiretap recordings of her daughter's voice talking about drugs and fake paperwork. Over the year following the arrest, Ms. Jackson dropped 10 pounds from her already slender frame and had to be hospitalized. Her other daughter began suffering from chronic headaches for which she also required hospitalization. To make things worse, Tina's two-year-old grandson had internalized emotions of raised hands and spread-eagled legs and would respond automatically to cues for secure entrance into the Federal Metropolitan Detention Center in downtown Los Angeles, where Tina was being held. That broke her heart most, Ms. Jackson said. At two years old, that little boy already know, knew how to go to jail. Jenia Jackson had lived on 56th Street for 30 years. She remembered when the first Mexican family had moved into the neighborhood. Her own black family was now one of the last on the block. Miss Jackson was known to her neighbors as a firm person. She frequently called the police on the kids in the neighborhood and she opened her garage to them when they had problems to discuss. She worked hard for her church and organized Women's Day's activities and worship events. She had been a block captain and was devastated by Officer Brooks' targeting of her family. Why mines? she demanded. Why not these? she asked, pointing to the cadre of girls on the corner who continued to deal drugs in the wake of the task force. She had until then been so proud of Tina, knowing that Tina was finally living on her own, that she had cleaned herself up from her addictions, that she was no longer running around on the streets, that she was paying her own rent and managing her own household. The drug game, however, was what had inspired Tina to get clean, and it kept her afloat. It was her new addiction, she said, fast money. Neither the most powerful nor the least, Tina was at the center of everything. She was the one always calling, the one always coming or going. She connected everyone, everyone from the highest to the lowest. She was everywhere, all the time.
Painstakingly, Brooks and King built their case. They, they recruited confidential sources, they stationed themselves in undercover vehicles, and made strategic arrests. But their informants were too scared to give good information, and their undercover cars were always identified. After the task force won the right to wiretap cell phone communications, all of this became moot. Brooks and King now knew everything about everybody, who was dating whom, who was fighting, and who was selling, and for how much. The drug verbiage of chickens, birds, bricks, cookies, ones, twos, and fives became the language of their everyday world. Within a two-year period, they had successfully uncovered the network. They assembled a list of 28 names, obtained warrants, and gathered the resources of over 30 collaborating law enforcement agencies. Then at dawn, on June 26, 2003, they started breaking down doors. Um, okay, so that's as much as I'm going to read. Um, every... It's, that little first section is kind of like a microcosm of the whole book and that it touches on all of these key things. It touches on the relationship of mental illness to incarceration, for example. It touches on the use of confidential informants and on um, what snitching does to neighborhoods. Um, it touches on the changing nature of gang violence given the changing nature of the city around us. Um, it touches on federal, uh, it, it doesn't touch as much on federal sentencing policy. I guess I should say that Tina eventually received a 25-year sentence um, for her, her involvement in the drug conspiracy. Junior, um, who was somewhat above her in, in, um, in the conspiracy, received the longest sentence, which was 27 years. Um, and uh, the, the major drug supplier, who's sort of a little bit later in the book, um, received a 22-year sentence. Now, federal sentencing policy is extremely complicated, and if there are policy implications to this book, it has to do with federal sentencing policy. Recently, in 2010, there was the, federal, uh, the Fair Sentencing Act that Obama signed into law. Before that, there had been this 100 to 1 crack versus cocaine sentencing disparity, meaning you had to have 100 times the amount of powder to trigger the same mandatory minimum sentences at the federal level. Now that's been... Uh, semi-rectified to just 18 to 1, which is still a pretty significant disparity. However, um, there are ways uh, that people are not gaining access. That law has also been made retroactive, okay? This is what we call justice, right? Um, it means it applies to people who got sentenced before under the old laws, but it, don't, it doesn't apply to Tina, okay? It does not apply to Tina Fly because she um, was labeled a career criminal and career com criminals are not eligible. Um, so the thing that I am thinking about right now is this link between mental illness and access to justice and um, the, the notion that even the Bureau of Justice Statistics knows and understands and has written reports about the fact that mentally ill people are overrepresented in our jails and prisons and they do tend to be chronically involved in the illegal economy and if that's the case there are probably a lot of people out there who are being denied this basic access to justice based on um, based on sentencing so if there is a policy direction that I'm headed in it's that there are a lot of things that I'm interested in in terms of reform there are a lot of stories in here there's a lot of stories about um, confidential informants and snitching and giving information and the kind of pressure and the kind of distrust that that foments in communities and how absolutely 
harmful um, those kinds of policing tactics um, are to communities because they if you don't have a community that trusts each other you have a serious breakdown in social control and the mistake with current policing is that they think that they can do social control from the top down and they can't what you need are strong lateral networks but in societies that have actually in in parts of town that have actually been forsaken by a lot of the benefits of the current political economy of our educational system you have the development of horizontal networks that are actually threatening like gangs they support people in other ways and so it's really complicated for law enforcement to really work its way around that and this story is about that tension um, and so that's that's really um, through storytelling me wanting to really change the rhythm of the conversation um, just using this one case there are a lot of people who write stories about criminal justice right now and what they do is they'll pick and choose like the worst cases like the most egregious examples of like law enforcement corruption you know um, they just pick and choose from wherever they are but I happen to know this one guy who got caught in the sweep and I wanted to just look at one case a case when everybody was good the cops were good you know they weren't corrupt they were working hard they believed in what they were doing and in a case where the drug dealers are likable people um, everybody's a human in this story and nobody's a hero and nobody's a villain and I think that that kind of everyday nature of this case it's nothing exceptional is really this the 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 true way that that law works to create inequality in our society is setting the everyday and non-exceptional cases I think that get you there and that's really what I'm interested in so anyway I'll leave it there Thank you very much. Um, at this time, let's open it up to questions. I'm going to um, ask our authors to sort of stand up here as we barrage them with questions. I knew there was going to be somebody who asked me that. Like, I, I just knew it. I was like, someone's going to ask me this, and I just have no clue, like, basically what to say to this person who's going to ask me, and it's you. So, um, thank you so much for the question. Um, there's a lot going on. And the most exceptional thing, it's not just LA. Yeah. It's everywhere, okay? And, and there's a lot of, like, funny ways of talking about that. You know, in Freakonomics, they say it's because abortion was legalized, and suddenly when abortion's legalized, people want to have the babies they have, so there's less unwanted babies, fewer unwanted babies, and less crime. Um, I think there's also a moment where violence is peaking, and it's in the 1980s. And it has to do with crack and the emergence of gangs around that trade. And any time you have a massive, and it also has to do with the arrival of guns. I mean, you have to understand there's really big things happening. And this is why the kind of personal choice models like 
Well, it was just a series of really bad individual personal decisions that the person made to become a drug dealer. That stuff doesn't really work for me. So in the book, there's all of this bigger stuff. And like the arrival of guns is one of the things that happens starting in the 1970s. Coinciding with the crack trade, you have huge spikes in violence, okay? All of that is linked to deindustrialization of America's cities. That is something that people do not link because it skips a generation. So you have these people, men who are out of work, they've lost jobs. You know, what do men do when they're like out of work and they've lost jobs? They drink, you know, they beat their wives, you know, whatever. There's all kinds of fun things that men do when they're out of work. <laughs> and if you're a kid growing up in that, in that household, and then you're, you're growing up in the, in the kind of, in the middle of this like untold, you know, this strife in your family, plus the fact that, hey, it didn't used to matter. If you actually did graduate from high school, you could still get a job. Okay, but coinciding with all that, California schools went from best to worst, okay? So now, you're still not graduating, but you're not, there's no jobs out there. So that this big drug economy, those kids in the 1980s who were the children of the people who lost the jobs, those kids were the ones who became part of the generation of drug dealers and gang members. And they were part of the, the, the generation that was participating in these really high rates of homicide that have to do with this major flux in society. And anytime you create a major flux that, that's that big, that leads to violence, okay? And what we're dealing with now is still this kind of unbridled, we still don't know what to do with, with the fact that we have a deindustrialized economy. There are some people who are still written out of that equation. Two million of them are currently in prison. Okay, so that there's a whole nother thing happening now, but there's also some stability about it, and people kind of got used to the drugs, the neighborhoods where they were, you know, the, they, they, they stabilized. Um, to me, and one of the arguments that I have in this book and that I've since done is that when they do these sweeps, um, in this book, gang violence goes down, non-gang violence goes up. Violence stays exactly the same before and after this sweep in the neighborhood. And in the division level, like in Newton Division, violence spikes. And you see when these sweeps take place, it has a disorganizing impact at the neighbor, at the division level, because it forces people to reorganize where the drug trade is happening. Um, to, to my view, this, this type of policing is, it's certainly the, been the flavor of the month for like the past 10 years. It's incredibly flawed. Um, we know that it's flawed. Um, and uh, I don't think that we have seen the, the outcome of that. And I would just like to just add on to what you're saying. Yes, gang violence is down. But have you noticed that the police shootings of people have gone up? We still live in an incredibly violent society. So that was a very long-winded answer. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and just um, speaking to your the, the spike of violence coinciding with the drop in gang violence. I recall reading an article years ago um, that attributed this drop in gang violence really to a re-categorization of crime. Mm. The way, you know, so maybe they're just not calling it yeah. violence anymore, they're calling it some other kind of violence. It really is still there. Yeah, it's, it's possible. I mean, 
there is there are all kinds of problems with the way that what we call gang violence violence and not and that's just a chronic problem and law enforcement will tell you that they're like oh yeah we don't know what to call it you know yeah well and there's there's huge discrepancies like you know, if you're kind of like a number, I'm not a numbers geek type person, but occasionally I'll have my moments of like getting on the LAPD online website and like looking through their gang statistics. I mean, how could you not? But they, they go through and like one month to the next, there's like 40,000 fewer gang members in LA. Okay, so there's weird things that happen. But in general, I think it holds true that, that gang, gangs suppress a certain amount of violence in the neighborhood. And if you take out everybody who's in charge of the drug trade and you leave a bunch of addicts around who are like looking for drugs and they're not gang members, you know, non-gang violence could very easily rise. I mean, gangs actually do perform social control in their neighborhoods. They, have, they do a lot of harm. I'm not a fan, actually, of gangs. I, I'm not. Um, I see the harm that they do, you know? And there's a bunch of people out there, two of whom are sitting in this room, maybe more. They're actively working on those issues of like understanding that gang members are people and that gangs aren't really that good of a thing for people. So, yeah. Other questions for Andrew? No. I mean, when I, when I was starting the Abbott Kinney part of the project, I interviewed a store owner who had been there f since the 1970s. And she, the first thing she said was, everybody says Abbott Kinney Boulevard is going to be upscale. They've been making that claim Abbott Kinney, that Abbott Kinney Boulevard is up and coming for 30 years. So it has been up and coming for 30 years. And now it is trendy. It took, it took basically four decades um, to get to that process. What's going to happen after that? I don't know. Um, certainly, wh what I argue in the book is that the transformation of Abbott Kinney Boulevard has a major impact on bordering Oakwood. Um, it used to be that 
Oakwood's culture was the more dominant local culture and would actually impact the potential to make Abbott Kinney Boulevard more upscale, um, the gang violence would literally leak on to Abbott Kinney Boulevard and there would be murders on Abbott Kinney Boulevard and people would be at work and, you know, and also many of the, the owners of the stores live on Abbott Kinney Boulevard and they would wake up in the morning with dead bodies outside of their stores. Um, it was very hard to develop a kind of upscale theme in a, in a place where there's ongoing violence. Um, the reverse, the, or I should say the inverse, is true now. Abikini Boulevard has gotten to the point where it's so upscale that now people move into Oakwood knowing that they want to be near Abikini Boulevard. And, and develop, I, when, when I was living there, I would go to a lot of open houses. And that was actually a pitch by real estate, by, by retail, by uh, uh, real estate brokers. Yeah, to, you know, they'd give you the, the, the handout of what the place was. And first line, walking distance to Abikini Boulevard. So, and, and this is in a place that was historically a, a place that, that white people didn't want to move into, right? And increasingly, now you're starting to see that. Since, since 2000, Oakwood uh, has become the largest population is white. On the boardwalk, the, the effort to, to get rid of and to regulate the boardwalk informal economy, the free speech zone, this is another thing that they've been trying to, the, the free speech zones uh, were informal vending. The free speech zone didn't really start until the 90s, this label of the free speech zone, but informal vending started probably about the, about the early 70s. Um, and they started to regulate it in 1972. I mean, so we're talking, again, we're talking 50 years, is it my math right? Yeah, 50 years since that started and they've tried to regulate continuously failing. They constantly fail. And my argument is that they fail because they actually don't understand. 40 years. 40 years, thank you. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Sorry, yeah. Um, 40 years, thank you. Um, they, they don't understand what's going on in the local environment. They think that the boardwalk is about informal vending, but it's much bigger than that. It's about homelessness, right? It's about when, when you have a place where people can where you have a dense pocket of public space. There aren't that many of them in LA, as we all know. When you have a dense pocket like Hollywood Boulevard, Venice Boardwalk, Third Street Promenade, there are a handful of them that there are lots of people in public, and Venice is probably the most diverse in its uses and probably the most crowded of those places. You're gonna have all these different types of microeconomies that emerge where people who are shut out of the labor market trying to figure out how to make ends meet. When they start regulating and wiping away the boardwalk uh, economy, People start to complain because not only do they wipe away the homeless vendors, they start to wipe away the artists, right? Because they can't figure out how to draw these distinctions between groups. And you see this over and over and over again. And this pattern has gone on for 40 years. Yeah. Um, I, I came to see Susan, but I actually asked some questions for you. Um, I want to know if you, you said something right now that you live in Venice, so I was curious as to whether you were, you were in fact a resident during the time you were doing the research and, and whether that, since you said yes, did, how did that impact you not, in, in the sense that people are sort of dividing themselves into groups, how do you remain um, neutral neutral <laughs> or perceived as neutral yeah. when you're easily That's identified a question. as to race and class and you're wandering around interviewing people? And the other question attached to that is, uh, have you been able to present this in Venice and did people throw things at you? <laughs> <laughs> so, to, okay, to the first question, I live in Philadelphia right now. 
Um, but I lived in Venice for six years, and I lived in Venice while I was doing the research. And, and um, it, was, it was actually very difficult to remain neutral. Um, it was actually more difficult with groups that face issues of marginalization. Because these groups were groups that were more defensive about their space. If you were to talk to gentrifiers and say that you knew so-and-so who was doing this or that, that they knew was a, for them was a problem, they didn't have a problem with me knowing them. They kind of understood actually what the project was and they can separate my identity in relationship to them. P groups that were more marginalized had a slightly more difficult time and it took more work on my part to convince them that, um, that they should continuously talk to me even though I was talking to other groups. So it, it, was, a, it was a problem. It took actually, I mean, to, to get access to, the homeless issue was, was much easier to get access. Homeless, homeless people are public, at, they live on the street. I mean, I had homeless people who lived in, in my uh, back alleyway, who I you know, got to know very easily. The Oakwood section was probably the most complicated place for me to get really good access. I would say it took me a year and a half of persistence, and I mean like regular persistence, of trying to talk to people and get them to accept who I was. And, 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 after, and this was a six-year project. So, you know, I had a good four years of, of getting to know them really well. And now, you know, I have a lot of friendships there and that, have, that have lasted. So, but it, but it take, took a long time. And I think also when you get to know people on a one-on-one -on -one basis, you start to see in people as individuals. Oftentimes, you, don't, you no longer see them. They don't see you as a researcher. They don't see you as... It was a long enough time. They knew who I was and they trusted me. Um, to the question, I have not presented it yet in, in Venice, and I am planning on it, and I will be ducking probably. So I'm hoping to. I don't know yet. I don't know yet. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping. Uh, they do. They're small world books. Um, there's the Vera Davis Center that I'm hoping to do something there, kind of a free, a free event. And the Brumbroke would be would be a good option. Yeah. I mean, I would like to do several. The Venice Community Housing Corporation is another one that, that I might might do something there. But th so there's a handful of places that I have connections there that hopefully will will work out in the next few months to do something. Yeah. But it just happened that this 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 came about earlier. Yeah. Are there any other questions? Yeah. I, I just want to, I'm just anticipating what could happen. Do you think that, that this book might prove to be a piece of boosterism for potential white gentrifiers who might care about tenants through your book and then might want to move there? <laughs> Sorry. How many agent, real estate agents have you sent this book to? Ed? Yeah. Um, how many people are reading? Right now, there's so many people. Um, no, I, I don't. I don't. I, I the simple answer. I don't think that it will have that effect. And I think if you, I mean, if you read the book closely, um, it's about it's about the evolution of neighborhoods and often about unintended consequences and the way that groups become implicated in the process of change, whether they like it or not, including me, as a resident in Venice, um, as much as. You know, I got to know so many different people of so many different backgrounds. I was also part of the process of change. And I think that people, I, and, and what, so what I try to do in the book is make people realize and reflect more on that involvement, right? To get involved in a neighborhood in a more conscious way. 
when you move into a place to kind of see what your position is in relationship to other groups. And I think that's one of the, the key messages. And I try to do it across all different groups to show you where people are actually coming from in terms of their historical development of who they are and how they're related to different groups. So, so no, I, I mean, I try to be really even-handed. And I, I hope it, that it doesn't become a kind of booster. But I don't think that Venice really has a problem attracting people is the other thing. I mean, yeah, I think they probably do a pretty good job on their own. Uh, in, in some cases, I think that there are intended consequences, you know, that, uh, because I, I see that happening in the in the Westlake area, you know, MacArthur Definitely. Park. Yeah. Uh, you know how they've been putting cameras up on the trees, uh, uh, kicking every homeless person out of the park, um, trying to bring these trendy stores to the area. Uh, uh, you know, got Starbucks. Yep. You know, on Seventh and Union, yep. never thought we'll see one in the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you have yeah. McDonald's next to it. And yeah. You have all the day laborers right there buying coffee at McDonald's and, right. and, and people that work in the yeah. buildings stopping for the Starbucks. Yeah. So also, you know, you, you find that some of those buildings there are are um, are being uh, gentrified. You know, um, and I and, and and if you see it online, you know, it's it's a uh, it's it's uh, being sold as a New York style living. Yeah, loft living. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Close to the metro, but right. uh, it, it, it's it's. I mean, on both sides, it, it's connected, you know, because I've seen it uh, happening how certain communities uh, are targeted uh, because of the, uh, you know, the uh, the uh, the gang issue and and operations and uh, sweeps and then identifying people and putting them on gang databases and then bringing in the gang injunctions, you know, and it's it seems like every time there's a gang injunction in the area, you know, the developers start coming in right behind, mm -hmm. you know, and then once they start coming behind, you see them paying off all these people that have lived through the violence, that have to burden all that, that, that pain, have to move out or they're bought out to move to other places that are in worse conditions. Yeah. And so that neighborhood changes into, you know, more people that get, and I don't want to say just white because it's not just white right. folks coming in. Right. People that are able to afford, you know, twice as much uh, or three times as much the rent that the other people were paying. And, and so it changes the dynamics of the neighborhood in a way in which, uh, in which uh, um, you can see a clear cut intention you know, when, when, when that happens. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's two things going on. I'm, certainly what you're talking about, like the class-based process, I think it's both intentions and unintended consequences. I mean, I think there's both. I, and I think it's easy to mix up the two, the two things when they're happening at the same time. I think it's easy to unify them as one process. And I think both are happening. But I think you're right. I mean, there's certainly strategy on the part of some people to get rid of some groups. They exist. They exist everywhere. Oakwood had an Oakwood plan in the 80s. The plan to get rid of gangs, get rid of low-income people, get rid of the low-income housing. I, I, some of my friends who live in the low-income housing and work to, to help sustain the low-income housing in, in Oakwood, there's 14 housing projects in Oakwood, were going to come tonight. I wish they did because um, they'd have a lot to say about this. But there have been efforts 
for years to try to get rid of that housing. Strate this is a strategy, right, of developers. But developers are very different than the middle class guy who um, is buying his first house and this is, the, this is a place that he can live by the beach that he can afford. And certainly they, he, this person may have a different culture, like a different background and different understanding of what neighborhood is. But I don't think that that person operates with the same sense of strategy as the developer that you're talking about. And I think that was my point about the unintended consequences. But I think you're absolutely right to say that there are intended consequences. I didn't mean to imply that there weren't. So, yeah, did you want to add something? Yeah, I can add. Um, the history of gang injunctions is really interesting because the first ones were always done on the borders of white middle class communities. So our history of gang injunctions is actually embedded in that. And the link between zero tolerance policing and real estate is not just something that happens in LA or in major cities in the US, like all the cities that you mentioned. It happens all over the world. The between real estate and zero tolerance policing is a class. They're like they're like lovebirds, you know. They're 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 bedmates, you know. They're they, they really are. You can't separate them anymore. And so that's. I mean, that is part of LA's history, the gang injunction thing. And the thing I would add is there was actually um, a task force in the Pueblo del Rio neighborhood in 2010 that happened, and. It's the same thing that Andrew's talking about, what's happened to South Central LA. The black people are leaving for other reasons, but policing fast tracks that process because every time you have one of these sweeps where 28 people, all of whom are the leftovers of the black community, they all know each other, they're all related in some way. I go into this whole like long kinship thing in there about how the 28 people are related. Every time someone gets arrested, someone gets evicted. So if they don't get evicted, they have to move. So that is fast policing and these very aggressive sort of strategies are fast tracking the exit of the black community from South LA. So like there, I mean, it's really funny because one of the guys in this book who became a confidential informant at the end of the, of the story, he ended up moving back to the neighborhood and I'm like, dude, you're like the only black guy moving back to South Central LA. Didn't you get the memo that everybody else is leaving? And that's part of, policing is part of that. And it's and it's so intentional that if you watch the like news footage of of that later sweep, it says, and this is really gonna change the complexion of this neighborhood. And they they know it. They're trying to get rid of this problem population. And when they do it, they think of it as very precision, like we're gonna take out this person who is a drug dealer, and they don't realize that like ten other people are involved in that and end up having to move to like Lancaster or to Atlanta, you know, so that's what happens. Yeah. Maybe I'm mistaken, but isn't it common uh, in fires, uh, residential gentrifiers, to perceive themselves as liberal, open-minded people because, you know, you're leaving the mainstream to move into the margins, into a low income. That's and if so, how how are they affected by the paradox of becoming the conservative force in this new place? <laughs> Yeah, this is actually one of, I mean, this is a, a very interesting tension. I mean, I take this, take this on in the book a lot, actually. Um, people are, Venice, I mean, 
when you think of Venice, I mean, what do you think of? You think of liberal culture and politics. I mean, Mike Davis called it the democratic libido. You know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, this is a place where politics uh, is part of everyday life and radical politics is part of everyday life. And people moving in know that. They're, there's something attr attractive about diversity that people want to, these are people in many cases who can afford to live in other neighborhoods. You know, maybe not those moving in, in the 70s and 80s, but people moving in in 2000, 2010 are people who can afford to live in other places. They can move into the canals, which is a very exclusive neighborhood in Venice, and pay millions of dollars to live there. They can move into Beverly Hills if they wanted to. You know, the canals is an exclusive neighborhood in Venice, but it's it's three steps away from the from the boardwalk. You know, so so it's it's an interesting point. It's people moving in, but then once they're there, they start to realize that there are certain problems that exist right in front of them that challenge their own understandings and own versions of quality of life. And I think that is, that is the struggle that they have to go, for, go through. And oftentimes it means trying to get rid of the homeless guy who's sleeping in the park next to their house. Right? And, and at that point, no matter what their ideology is, they may organize for Obama, but in terms of everyday life, they're conservatives. They are. They become local conservatives in that sense. And so I think you're right on, you're right on in that point. And it's, a, it's actually a struggle that people have to deal with. And the politics becomes so contested in a local environment that, like this that it often becomes personal. So you have really strong activists, um, homeless advocates, for example, who are pushing more social services, more rights for homeless people, let homeless people live in RVs and vans on the streets, and people who don't want that. And, and then it becomes personal between these groups. They just want to see, and they'll do anything to get rid of those people. You know, it, it, it escalates into a major conflict, and the groups become even more solidified. Your association with that identity of being the person who wants homelessness out of the neighborhood, that becomes part of who you are in the local environment. Right? You've changed from, from coming in as this sort of like idealistic liberal into a kind of almost conservative um, revolutionary Right, trying to rid the neighborhood of certain groups entirely, you know. So, I mean, it, it's a great question, and really, I mean, I think you're right on. Um, there's two, two. Well, I, just just to say, I, I really do believe, though, it's kind of inaccurate to call residential residents gentrifiers. Um, to be someone who is in the act of gentrifying the community would be, you know, you'd have a, you could take that up with the chambers of commerce that are selecting certain businesses to be able to move in. Or, or housing and urban development who make certain demographics their lives hell living in a certain neighborhoods to in the hope that they leave. But to say people who are coming in and filling that vacuum created, I don't think it's accurate to call them judging by the just think that I just want to be on record with that. But the other people putting it for me, but the other people read. Yeah, I mean I think the point I was trying to make was yeah. No, I mean I this is where the tomatoes come out. Yeah, I, I think gentrification is not one thing. So I will say that. I mean, I do think that, you know, this is the problem that happens when, diverse, when larger policies fail and diversity takes hold in a place. So I think on one, on one hand, you're, you're, you're right, right? But, but the idea of who is the gentrifier, right? Who is the gentry in this case, right? I mean, I don't know if, if cities have a gentry class to be honest with you, if you really wanted to get into the meaning of the term. Um, the 1%. Yes. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. You're right. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, a place like Bel Air or Beverly Hills might be the only gentrified places in in LA if you really wanted to get technical about the definition. Um, so I had a question for Susan, which is a little along the lines of how we present. How do we get this information to law enforcement without increasing the the width and breadth of your FBI file, which I'm sure is quite and you were talking about your cell phone diversity, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, um... It, can we, can we, is there a way to get it to them? Can we send it to administration of justice professors in the community college? How, do, yeah. how does this information go to future cops? Yeah, well, I don't even know that cops are the ones that I wanted to go through. And by the way, I did ask my FBI friend <laughs> if I had a file. And guess what? He didn't answer me. So I assume that that means that maybe, you know. Oh, for sure you've got a file. You definitely do. But anyway, um, yeah, there's a couple of us in here that have those files. Yeah, right. Um, so yeah. Um, no, I'm actually lucky in that I'm a Soros fellow. And in the, the Soros uh, um, Foundation is in the business of turning stuff like this into policy. And so I'm lucky enough to be able to like go to a conference in a couple weeks in Puerto Rico, which I'm very excited about, um, to talk about these issues. And I don't think that cops are where you want to make the change. I think you want to make the change in law. And I think that legal advocacy is where you make the change in this particular case. It doesn't have to do with policing on the ground. I think that that's basically... Um, I'm going to do a rejoinder to this just because... That's legal language, thank you. <laughs> One thing I've figured out is that the police have an enormous latitude in law. It turns out that your average everyday Joe cop on the street is really the one in like 95% of the cases that decides what the person's going to be charged with and the DA just goes along with it. So I think you've got to change it down there. Well, let me just make it clear. My rejoinder to you is, this is a very specific kind of case, which is a federal conspiracy case. And if I'm interested in reform for this book, I'm interested in reform at the federal level. Okay? And it's reform that has to do with, for example, the fact that they don't require hard evidence in conspiracy cases. They only require um, wiretap communications, the conspiracy, the definition of conspiracy is the intention to commit a crime so that a, a transaction never has to take place on the street. There doesn't have to be hard evidence. There's all these really lax standards for how they do conspiracy at the federal level. That's what needs to change. Okay, so that would be good. Um, <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. I think that, you know, I have a whole little laundry list of things that I would like to change. Some of them are small, some of them are big. And I really, you know, I, 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 I have a difficult relationship with, with, with police. You know, I, I pity them. And I'm angry at them, <laughs> too. So, the, and, and neither of those is a good emotion to associate with the people in charge of 
public safety. So I think that needs to change. I, I actually respect the, the, the cops that, that I have worked with in this particular case. There are, are a lot of them who, because they are in a context too, and this is the reason why you should pity them, their morality gets just as skewed as they accuse the gang members' morality of being. So that, for example, there's a guy who falsifies documentation in this case. You know, there's all these ways that this really severe process of othering allows people to, um, to, to do kinds of suppression that are both legal and illegal, and they don't see the difference because they're so sure in their heart that it's right. And understanding that is really important. So that's the kind of level that interests me. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.